Well, if you do have a Bible with you, I want to uh, encourage you to open it to Micah chapter 5. Uh, this is now week number four of our Advent series. Our series is called Waiting for Christmas. And throughout this series, what we've been doing is we have been exploring Christmas through the lens of Old Testament prophecy. And we began all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 3, with the promise of a seed. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and her offspring or her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we explored that prophecy and the, and the fact that it predicted the, the coming of the Messiah, that he would be wounded, but that he would crush the head of the serpent. Then we fast forwarded all the way to the 8th century BC and we looked at this announcement or at the announcement of a sign from the prophet Isaiah where Isaiah said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Then we stayed with Isaiah, and last week we looked at another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, the promise of a son, where Isaiah says, for, uh, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Today we're looking at a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, specifically this verse, verse 2, which says... But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And I entitled this message, A Surprise. Now that seems fitting since we are talking about Christmas, and Christmas, as we know, is often full of surprises. Uh, I don't mean it in quite that way. The Christmas surprise that I want every year is the one that I've only seen in TV commercials. It's the one where I wake up on Christmas morning and my family leads me out to the driveway and there in the driveway is a shiny t Toyota Tacoma wrapped with a red bow, right? Kids, in case you need help this year getting that gift for dad, that, that would be a perfect surprise. That's the kind of Christmas surprise that would be worth talking about. But the kind of Christmas surprise I'm talking about, the kind of Christmas surprise we meet here in chapter 5, is the kind where you see a gift or you receive a gift and you don't expect much from it. In fact, you might be inclined to simply dismiss it or ignore it but it ends up being of far greater value than you ever could have imagined. So let me try to explain what that's like with a sports analogy. Every year, the NFL holds its draft, where the teams select the best available college players. They do seven rounds of this. All 32 teams draft through seven rounds. There's a few extra picks that are thrown into that. And the last pick in the draft, pick number 262 this year, is known as Mr. Irrelevant. They even make a jersey for him that says Mr. Irrelevant on the back of it. 
And he's called Mr. Irrelevant because no one expects the guy who was drafted last in the NFL draft to ever actually play in the NFL. And this year, Brock Purdy, a quarterback from Iowa State of all places, was selected last overall. He started the season as the third string quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. In game two of the season, the 49ers starting quarterback, Trey Lance, suffered an injury, fractured his ankle out for the season, had to have surgery. In game 12 of the season, their backup quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, suffered a season-ending injury out for the season. All of a sudden, Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, is playing for the San Francisco 49ers. And before he started his first game for them, there were all sorts of experts predicting dire consequences for the 49ers. One commentator said, well, there was a reason he was taken last in the NFL draft. They've won all three games he's played in. He's pretty good. Good dad joke for you. Look, lots of people are wondering now, are the 49ers actually better off with him at quarterback than either of their other two options? Sometimes those things that we are tempted to dismiss or look down on end up being huge surprises. And that's the kind of surprise we learn about in this passage. So let's read the passage as we find it in Micah chapter 5. And we're looking at verses 1 to 5. This is what it says. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Well, we're focusing mainly on verse 2, but we're looking at all five verses. And out of this passage, what I want to do for you is to draw your attention to three surprises related to salvation. The first one is that the announcement of salvation often comes when we least expect it. So just let me give you the historical context of what was happening in this passage or what was happening when Micah made this prophecy. There were two massive crises that were facing Israel at this time. The first crisis was a crisis of leadership. If you read through the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, you discover that there was no one really to lead Israel. No one qualified to do so. And this crisis of leadership affected both the civil leaders and the religious leaders or the spiritual leaders. Here's what Micah said earlier in his book or in his prophecy. He said, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. 
Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. So there was a crisis of leadership because the political leaders had failed and because the religious leaders were corrupt. They did what they did for money. And God promises he's going to raise up a ruler. He's going to raise up a leader. He's going to raise up a shepherd and answer that crisis. But the last verse of that section from Micah 3 that I read actually helps us understand the second major crisis that was facing Israel at this moment. Zion was about to be plowed as a field. Jerusalem was about to become a heap of ruins. There was a leadership crisis, but the most imminent crisis facing Israel at this moment was a military threat from the Assyrians. You can see it in verse 1 of our passage where it says, Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The Assyrians were basically standing at the door and they were about to kick it in and devastate Israel. Things looked bleak. And when you read what some of the other prophets who prophesied during this time period had to say, you discover that the question many people had was, has God abandoned his people? Has he forgotten us? Has he forsaken us? Has he turned his back on us? That's actually a point that you could have asked at many periods of Israel's history. Has God forgotten us? It's a question that many people have today as well. Has God forgotten about us? Now, the truth is that God had not forgotten his people or forsaken his people. They had forsaken him. They had broken covenant. They had worshipped and served other gods and idols. You could reasonably say they were getting what they deserved. But even with that, God had not abandoned them. And so verse 2 goes on to say that he will provide a way of salvation. He will raise up a shepherd. This is so often the story we find in the Bible. Just at that moment when things look their darkest, when it looks like we will be crushed under the weight of our circumstances, God steps in. And provides a way forward, a way of escape, a way of salvation. This, in fact, is the message of the Christmas story. It's the story of God's light piercing the darkness of this world. You know, one of my favorite words in all the Bible is the word behold. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, that's just a filler word, but it's not. Behold is the word that biblical writers often use when they want to describe some radical act of salvation that God is about to undertake or about to do. So John the Baptist meets Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that word, behold, actually features prominently in the Christmas story as well. We already spent one week exploring this prophecy from Isaiah where it says, Behold, 
The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Behold, look, God is about to do something. He is about to break into this world. In Luke's gospel, we read this account of the the announcement of Jesus' birth. It says, And in that same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God pierces our darkness with the announcement that He is bringing salvation into the world. And the reason I said that it's the announcement of salvation that often comes when things look their darkest is because it's not always the case that the actual salvation or deliverance comes immediately. I mean, Micah is going to go on to compare this period to a pregnancy. The child is coming. There's the promise. But first, you have to deal with the difficulties of pregnancy and the pain of labor. And the truth is that Israel would be invaded. They would be plowed as a field. But this word of assurance from God meant this would not be their end. And sometimes that's exactly what we need. We don't need everything fixed right away. We just need to know we are not forgotten by God. These were dark times for Israel. They experienced military defeat and invasion and exile. And all through this period, God spoke to them through the prophets. And when you read what God said through those prophets to these people, You could sum up their message as God saying, I have done something, I am doing something, and I will do something. That's his message. And those are the truths that I have often reminded myself of when I experience my own dark times or go through difficult periods. I remind myself, God has done something. He has acted in history. He has provided salvation by sending his son. God is doing something. God is not like the watchmaker who simply, you know, wound this thing up and is just sort of letting it take its course until it stops. And God will do something. We long for the return of Jesus where everything will be set right. So that announcement of salvation often comes when we least expect it. Here it's a military invasion. Our situation might be a different kind of darkness, but that's God's word of assurance to us. Second thing we see here is that salvation often comes from where we least expect it. This is the focus of verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Now that verse tells us plainly that Bethlehem was small. But I don't know if we fully realize just how small Bethlehem was at that time. Now Israel itself was a small nation, it still is. And this verse tells us that the region of Bethlehem Ephrathah was too little to be among the clans of Judah. So just how small was that? 
Well, the background to this is, is found in the Old Testament book of Numbers. And just in case you haven't read the Old Testament book of Numbers lately, let me just sort of bring you up to speed as to what it said about the clans of Judah. In order for you to be counted among the clans, you needed to have 1,000 men who were fit for battle, right? They were of a serviceable age. They were of reasonable health so that they could go to war. You needed 1,000. Bethlehem was so small, they could not even muster an army of a thousand men who were fit for battle. That's how small it was. And what God says is he's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring deliverance from there. And I think that strikes us as odd because we naturally assume that bigger is better. I mean, we don't expect an NFL quarterback to come out of Iowa State. Morgan Wallen began selling tickets for his upcoming tour last week. I noticed he's doing two shows in Vancouver, but zero in Spuzzum. And why would he? We expect great things to come out of great places. Bigger is better. This is a universal phenomenon, it's a, but it's a huge mistake. So you might remember that this prophecy from Micah is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. That account begins like this. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So the wise men, they see this star they follow it. They know that it's, they somehow know it signifies the birth of a new king. It's a significant birth. They want to be there. And they go to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Well, because it was the capital city. It was the most significant place in Israel. Of course, if there's a king born, that's where he's to be born. And they naturally make their way to the palace. I mean, that's where kings reside. So they get to Jerusalem, they want to know, where is this newborn king? And it's the scribes and the Pharisees who say, oh, actually, Old Testament prophecy says he's to be born in Bethlehem. See, God's plan of salvation is often different than what we might expect. He chooses Bethlehem. He chooses a cave or a stable and a manger. And when you read the Bible, you discover this is actually God's M.O., even the mention of Bethlehem should alert us to that. The most famous thing about Bethlehem up to this point is that it was the birthplace of King David, right? That was his hometown. So we might think, well, Israel, I mean, David was Israel's greatest king, so Bethlehem obviously had this kind of significance to it. But just think about the story of David and his kingship for a minute. Do you remember how he was identified as the future king of Israel? Well, that story is found in 1 Samuel 16. Saul was the king of Israel, but he had rejected the Lord, so the Lord rejected him. The prophet Samuel was commissioned to go and anoint a new king, and he was led to Bethlehem of all places. It was a surprise. He gets to Bethlehem, and he goes to the house of a man named Jesse, who had a whole gaggle of sons. Surely the new king would be among one of those men. So the first one comes out, he's tall and he's strong. Saul's like, here's my best, or 
Jesse's like, here's my best son. And Samuel looks at him and says, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. And in fact, Jesse parades all of his boys before Samuel. Here's what it says. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, oh, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Right, this is kind of the male version of Cinderella, right? The shoe, or in this case, the crown, doesn't fit anyone. Oh, but there's still one more young lad. His own father didn't think it was worth bringing him out to meet the prophet Samuel because surely he's not fit to be king. He's the runt of the litter. He's not the one you would naturally choose to become king. But God doesn't do things according to human convention. God delights in bringing salvation out of nothing, or at least out of what we deem to be nothing. This Savior, this ruler, will come out of Bethlehem. It's a surprise. And this isn't a bug in God's plan of salvation, but a feature. The Apostle Paul will go on to say this in the New Testament. He'll say, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the way God works. If we're looking for salvation, We're tempted to look for the biggest, for the newest. God gives us a baby. In Bethlehem of all places. But it's not just the place that that God's deliverance will arise from that's surprising. Notice what else is said about this ruler in verse 2. He says, For from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient of days. Now, if one of our tendencies is to think that bigger is better, then surely another one is to think that newer is truer or something along those lines. Newer is better as well. But this leader is from of old. In fact, from ancient of days. So what does that mean? He's from of old, from ancient of days. Well, it's an interesting phrase. That phrase or title appears a few times in the Bible. Here's what the prophet Daniel saw in a vision. He said, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. In Daniel's vision, the ancient of days refers to God who is sitting on the throne as a judge. So if this prophecy from Micah is referring to Jesus as the ruler who will come from Bethlehem. What does it say, what does it mean to say that his coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days? It's a fascinating question. What it means is that the baby born in Bethlehem is no ordinary baby. It means that Jesus, the pre-existent, eternal one, 
stepped into time in that moment. That's why John begins his gospel like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's who was born in Bethlehem. John goes on to say this. The word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, what happened in Bethlehem was nothing less than the collision of heaven and earth. The Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy once described Russia as a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. I think that's also a pretty good description of the incarnation. A riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. The the hymn writer who wrote, O little town of Bethlehem, got this right. He said, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. See, all of our hopes, our deepest longings, all of our fears, those things that plague us, that we think about in those dark moments, all of those things are met in Jesus this ruler who comes out of Bethlehem. Salvation often comes from where we least expect it. Third thing we discover here is that salvation often comes in a way we don't expect it and to an extent beyond our expectations. That's a long point. I know it's really two points rolled into one. But let me just start with the first part of that. Salvation often comes in a way we don't expect it. Verse 3 says this, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time When she who is in labor has given birth. Now, if you're having trouble keeping up with it, with the identity of the he and the them in that verse, it's understandable. What the verse is saying is that God will give Israel up into the hands of her enemies until the time this one is born, he'll become the shepherd of Israel. So just time out. Because I think lots of us don't like that idea. The idea that God would allow his people to go through this time of hardship before their deliverance. See, what we would want that verse to say is something like, therefore, God will immediately smash your enemies to bits. Right? That's the kind of deliverance we want. We want it instantaneously. But in fact, when you read the book of Micah as a whole, and when you read what the rest of the prophets from this time have to say, you discover that actually Israel's enemies are part of God's discipline of the nation. Now, it's not popular to say it, but God disciplines his people. Last week, Sean shared a little bit about his experience as a vice principal in one of our local schools, and he was talking about the nature of his conversation with some of the students who are in trouble for one reason or another. And what he says to those students, if you remember, is I'd ignore this if I didn't care about you. I'd let it slide if I didn't want what was best for you. Now, if you're on the other end of one of those types of conversations, your response is probably going to be, well, that's just principal speak, or that's just parent speak, right? That's what they're supposed to say. 
but it's not. And this is what God does with his children. And we'll get into this in more detail in the new year when we return to the Gospel of John. But listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you've ever looked on on the pruning process, you know that it looks painful. I mean, do you really have to cut it back that drastically? If you're experiencing pruning, it feels painful. Oh, I know I shouldn't be trusting in this thing more than I'm trusting in God. But do you really have to take it all away? can be painful. Sometimes we want salvation to mean that we experience no consequences. I think I've shared this story with you before, but I remember seeing this in one of my very early experiences in ministry. So one of my tasks was to follow up with some of the newcomer cards that we received on Sunday mornings. And one of the cards we received was from an individual who had indicated that he had received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. That was on Sunday. I followed him up uh, up with him on Tuesday of that week. But when I called and said who I was, he said, I'm no longer interested in that. I came to your church on Sunday and I prayed that prayer because I was about to be evicted from my apartment. Just spoke to my manager. He said he's still evicting me. I don't want any part of that. I thought it would fix it all. See, that's the kind of quick salvation we want. Something that's just going to make our consequences magically disappear. This is what I mean by saying that salvation often comes in a way we don't expect. God will give Israel up to her enemies until that time the child is born. But this doesn't mean that salvation is somehow less than what we might expect. The truth is it's more. It's far more. It's exceedingly, abundantly more. So the kind of salvation, the kind of deliverance that the Israelites wanted at this moment was just to have the foot of the Assyrians taken off their neck. Right? Just give us release from our enemies. What God promises here is actually so much more than that. The salvation here is broader in scope than what they were hoping for. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, Israel wasn't just at war with other nations. Israel was at war with itself. The whole nation had split into these different fractions or factions. But God says the rest of the brothers shall return to Israel. It'll be restored. The whole nation will be restored. But not just that. Verse 4 then goes on to speak about... the. Uh, something beyond just national Israel and says that the greatness of the one who is to be born shall extend to the very ends of the earth. See, that's the announcement of Christmas. It's good news of great joy for all people. 
There's a universal scope to the salvation God promises. They were just thinking about their own little part of the world, you know, and that's, that's natural. We're, ta- we're mostly focused on our family or our community, maybe our country. God is doing something so much bigger than that. God is doing something that will impact the whole world to the very ends of the earth. And then notice how verse 5 begins. It says, and he shall be their peace. Well, there it is. I mean, you, you might give and receive some great gifts this Christmas. But there is only one who can truly give you peace. I think Christmas is, is it's a funny season because sometimes we expect too much from it, right? We expect magic and nostalgia and the creation of these cherished memories, And there can be kind of a letdown if those things don't materialize in the way that we had hoped. But I wonder if the real problem with Christmas is not that we expect too much from it, but that we expect too little from it. I mean, we just want a few days off. We just want some family time. We just want a few nice presents. But what if God's design for Christmas was to give us infinitely more than that. I mean, what if our expectations are just too low? Whenever I think about our low expectations in regards to God's provision, I think about the story of Ruth. If you haven't read it, or maybe you haven't read it for a while, it's a great story tucked into the Old Testament. The book of Ruth is taken up with the account of two destitute widows in Israel. The first one is Naomi. She and her family left Israel, moved to Moab, but they were met with tragedy at every, at every turn. Her, her husband, her two sons died. She now returns to Israel along with her Moabite daughter-in-law. There were, their prospects for life, for a future, were bleak. One of the provisions for the poor that was found in Israel's law was that you could go and glean in someone's field behind the reapers. So you could kind of have the scraps, so to speak, whatever they didn't pick up. This was Ruth and Naomi's plan for survival. That's all they were hoping for. So in Ruth chapter 2, it says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter, right? All she's doing is, look, I hope I find a little bit of favor. I hope I can get a little bit of grain so we can eat. Verse 17 of of that chapter, it says this. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. An ephah of barley. Well, how much is that exactly? I did some digging and found that an ephah is about the same as a bath or about one-tenth of a homer or about three-fifths of a bushel. Got it? Most scholars think an ephah was about 30 to 50 pounds worth. So Ruth begins the day. She's just hoping for enough favor to find a little bit of grain behind the reaper's But she ends up with so much more. Now, you have to go and read or reread the story for yourself, but she ends up with much more than that as well. She ends up marrying that wealthy landowner. She ends up in the genealogy of Jesus. 
God did exceedingly abundantly more than she could have ever asked or imagined. And that is the nature of salvation. See, we just want temporary relief. God gives us his son. He shall be your peace. And I want to close just by reading for you the way the book of Micah ends. Here's what Micah says. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do do you see what an incredible gift that is? Right, what the Israelites wanted is just, they just wanted to be free of the bondage of the Assyrians. And God says, no, I've got a deliverance for you that is so much greater than that. All of your sin, all of your rebellion will be cast into the depths of the sea. That's what Jesus did for us. He is our peace with one another and our peace with God. So we're going to move into a time of communion together, remembering that very thing. Celebrating the fact that God does not retain his anger forever, that he delights in steadfast love, that he treads our iniquities underfoot, that he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea, and he has done that by Jesus taking the punishment for our sins. So as we celebrate communion, my hope is that that's the thing that you bear in mind, the greatness of your salvation. It cost God his son. It gave us new life. So let's just pray together and then we'll have the servers come and the band come. Father, we want to thank you for your grace towards us. Uh, Lord, even as we think about this Christmas season, we all understand what it's like to give and receive gifts. But there is no greater gift than the one that you gave us in Jesus. And we pray that we would uh, be mindful of that throughout this week. That we would just be aware that you have sent Jesus into this world. You did it at the very right time. And that because of that, we can have a restored relationship with you. We pray that fills our hearts with joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.